Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'm happy to begin today by thanking fellow saloners David B. and Simon T., who uh, both have recently made donations to help offset some of the expenses here in the salon. And uh, thank you again, you guys. I really appreciate your help. Now, before we get into today's program, there are a couple of announcements that I'd like to pass along first. To begin with, one of our fellow saloners has posted a notice on our forums that he is in the early stages of planning a small psychedelics conference to uh, be held in Berlin this autumn. So if you're going to be in Europe this coming September and are interested in perhaps speaking, well, you can find more information about this on the Salon's forums, which, uh, as you know, you can get to simply by clicking the forums link at the top of the psychedelicsalon.com website. Also, I'd like to let you know about some podcasts that I've been uh, interviewed on lately. A couple of weeks ago, I spent Sunday evening on the live radio program Inner Journey with Greg Friedman. And uh, then last week, I joined Bruce Damer on the Third Eye Drops podcast, where the two of us were interviewed by Michael Phillip. And then I was also interviewed for the Novelty Generators podcast by fellow saloner and Planque Norte lecturer, Niles Heckman. And I'll link to those podcasts in today's program notes uh, <laughs> in the event that you want to hear a few more of my stories. Now, uh, let's get on with today's program. Originally, I thought that I would have another new speaker for you to listen to today, but, well, those plans had to be pushed back a bit, and so I'm just going to play yet another talk by Terrence McKenna for you today. This one is the beginning of a weekend workshop that was held in December of 1989. And uh, today I'm going to play the Friday night session that begins uh, just after they'd gone around the room with each uh, participant saying a little bit about themselves. And as you're going to hear in just a moment, the first minute or so of this session didn't uh, get recorded and it just kind of picks up as Terrence begins his rap for the evening. Then, uh, after the Friday evening talk, we'll pick up with the beginning of the Saturday morning session. Um, so this uh, sexual permissiveness is another aspect of the archaic revival. And, uh, you know, national socialism in Germany was a negative aspect. It isn't entirely positive. It's simply a revivification of archaic form. That's all it is. Some of you may know there was something in the 1880s called the Celtic Revival. This was an effort to imbue everything from poetry to furniture design coming out of England with a spirit of, of the archaic Celtic mind. But what the archaic revival that I'm talking about is, it's a global phenomenon and a necessary phenomenon. You see, what happens is when a society begins to come apart, when the metaphors that have sustained it for perhaps thousands of years begin to wither on the vine, there is an unconscious, it is not rational, there is an unconscious reflex which sweeps through the society. It is to go back into time to the last model that made sense and then put it in place. 
Now, an easy example that lets us understand this is the breakup of the medieval world in Western Europe about 500 years ago. It came to a place where it no longer made any sense and forward-looking thinkers reached back into time to the models of ancient Greece and Rome and created what we call classicism. I mean, bear in mind that classicism is a creation of the 15th, of the 16th century. You know, they are as far from classicism as we are from the, the mentality that built Chartres Cathedral. And yet, they went back into Roman law, Greek philosophy, Greek religion, and tried to revivify these forms and did so very successfully and created the European Enlightenment. The period from the Renaissance to the Enlightenment was this working out of classical form. Well, our cultural crisis is much deeper and global. And so when we reach back into time for a steadying metaphor, it isn't Greece and Rome. It isn't even dynastic Egypt. It isn't even the hierarchical male-dominated societies of Sumer or Babylon or um, uh, the Harappan civilization of Mahinjo-Daro. It's further back in time to about fifteen to 20,000 years ago in the wake of the last glaciation. Someone in the circle tonight mentioned Rian Eisler. Eisler as a student of Maria Gambutas, they have created a revolution in archaeological thinking. The old myth is that there was a fluctuation between patriarchy and matriarchy, but that there was always stratification and hierarchy. Eisler is saying, no, this isn't what it was. It isn't matriarchy and patriarchy. It's partnership versus dominator. And the great uh, gift that comes out of this recasting of the problem is you get rid of gender tension in talking about it. It's not about men versus women. It's about one kind of mind, the dominator mind, in contrast to another kind of mind, the partnership mind. The partnership mind is seeking to maximize (coughs) group values, create horizontal linkages among systems, and hold down the tendency to vertically stratify the organization into some kind of dominance hierarchy. These two things play off in the transition from nomadic pastoralism, which was a a partnership arrangement, into the early city style of living. In a way, you see, pastoralism is a transition from true hunting and gathering to true city dwelling and agriculture. And in this transition, and this is my contribution, if it is a contribution to this discussion of human origins, uh, there was a kind of symbiosis. There was a flirtation with a kind of symbiosis in our early history 
as human beings. The relationship between human beings and psychedelic mushrooms on the plains of Africa 20,000 to 12,000 years ago was a kind of uh, religio-biological dynamism of a sort that has not existed since history. History is, in fact, the quenching and the withdrawal of this relationship of symbiosis to the rest of nature. So what I will argue this weekend is that in our private, personal, small lives, we can create our own archaic revival by exploring shamanism, hallucinogenic plants. These are the technologies and the tools of prehistory. We can do that in our own lives, but also we are part of this larger generalized societal phenomenon that is major. I mean, it is major because what we're discovering is not uh, a new way to measure the speed of light, not a new way to uh, make war against our neighbors, but actually uh, an entire aspect of reality that has been culturally blocked from our awareness because we are embedded so deeply in the dominator style of language that we cannot even cognize this other reality unless we have recourse to some boundary-dissolving, neurophysiologically perturbing tool of some sort. And there are various... I mean, an excellent tool and the way most people at least in modern life, I think, come against the psychedelic experience, is they nearly die. I mean, you know, you pull somebody out of a burning airplane or something, and they're immediately ready to talk turkey about (laughs) what's real and what is not. They have no illusions. It's been shorn from them. But this is a very hit-and-miss method because you lose half the people (laughs) when you try to bring them through that way. So, so what is needed, you see, is a, a, a challenge. It needs to be put a little more strongly than a challenge. It, it has to be, you have to feel the actual bite of fear because that is uh, an indication that, you're, that the existential mode in which you're operating in is real. I mean, what is always put against people who use hallucinogens is that they're hedonists. Well, it's hedonists are people who don't take hallucinogens, uh, to my mind, because it largely is very hard work. I mean, it isn't always hard work, but as a life, as a path, it's extremely hard work. And the reason for that is that it's real. And this is uh, the main thing that I am interested to put across and the main way in which I think I differ from the New Age and I think the shamanic option differs from all other options. So far as I have been able to determine, it's the only thing which works. And, you know, I get a lot of flack about this and people say, well, that's just a terrible thing to say. I mean, you've just devalued 
10,000 years of ontological speculation on the part of Buddhism, Hinduism, so forth. And so, I know, but I was there. It didn't work. That's all I'm saying. It didn't work. It works when you're stoned. Then they all work. Then they all work. Mantra, mudra, the whole crowd. It works. But it's as though, uh, you know, you have to have a battery to run the car. And the spiritual machinery that we're given is the equivalent of a Maserati without any gas in the tank. The, the uh, issue of psychedelics, of plant transformation, of losing the ego is the most closely held facet of, of reality in a dominator society. And what I will argue uh, this weekend for you is that the ego, as we experience it as moderns, is actually a pathological condition. The ego is like a uh, calcareous tumor or a cyst. It begins growing in the personality in the absence of hallucinogenic substances. Because in the absence of hallucinogenic substances, assumptions get rolling and there's no stopping these assumptions because they are never held up to a reasonable standard, you know. They're just simply taken for granted. And the whole style of dominator society is a taking for granted. So... Uh, you know, many people over the past 25 years have said that it's a fine thing to uh, take psychedelic plants, you know, makes you copulate in the street and love your neighbor. And I agree with all of that, but having been raised a good Catholic girl, I want to go further and uh, create a compelling reason why this is correct, a compelling reason that doesn't rest on the needs of the individual but actually addresses the needs of society. And I think what it is, um, and I won't say too much about it tonight, but the, the issue is ego and how when there was this very tight symbiosis with vegetation, the ego could not arise and there was a direct pipeline into something which we call the overmind, the logos, the gnosis, the goddess, a direct pipeline into a transcendental reality, which if it weren't for psychedelics, probably most of us could be convinced that this transcendental reality doesn't exist. I mean, except for people who take psychedelics, the only other people who contact these things on a regular basis are, um, well, a pathological is too strong a word, but they are definitely more delicately balanced than the rest of us. The big news about psychedelics is that they're democratic. You know, and it's not like summoning flying saucers where you go to the same cornfield on eight successive nights and freeze your ass off and get nowhere. The thing to bear in mind is that this is on demand. You know, it is on demand. I mean, it's not a hundred percent certain, but if it's 95 percent certain, this is big news. And what is it that is delivered on demand? literally the fulfillment and transcendence of our wildest dreams. 
not the white light, not all any of these cheerful hypostatizations of Eastern religion, but, you know, instead thousands of overdressed elves pounding their way into your inner sanctum and squeaking at you in languages that are not scripted on this planet. What are we to make of such a thing? What are straight people to make of it? I mean, it's, it's hard enough for heads to come to terms with this stuff. And I think we've dealt with it so far by just saying, well, heads are pathological people. And we do not have to listen to what they report because anybody crazy enough to take one of these drugs on their own without expert psychiatric supervision can't be trusted anyway. Well, this is just nonsense. This is uh, what is really going on is a continuing insistence on an expression of shamanic forms that people will not let the world's oldest religion die. And it is more than drumming, fasting, humming, whistling, and all that. For my money, it centralizes on some kind of technique for creating a rupture of plane, an ecstatic experience, an inflow of information that is completely unexpected. I mean, to me, the world divides into two kinds of people people who know that this is possible and people who either don't know or if it's suggested to them, deny it absolutely. It's as fundamentally a part of who we are as our sexuality is. Now, the interesting thing about sexuality is that we can almost make the statement, no one escapes I mean, when you're, uh, when you're an 11-year-old boy or a 9-year-old boy, you may say, girls are yucky and I'm never going to have anything to do with it. And I, but life hormones have a way of channeling us inevitably toward these then boundary-dissolving and shattering experiences where we discover, we seem to discover what people are for say, my God, they're not just to drive me to school and to take me to dance lesson. They're actually into this other thing. Uh, the psychedelic experience is optional. You can go from birth to the grave and never come near this, never have an inkling. And most people do. But that is not, to my mind, a proper use of the opportunity afforded by human existence. To my mind, the purpose of human existence is to try and figure out uh, a way in, out, over, up, somewhere. In other words, we come out of an unguessable abyss who knows what it is, what we came from, and we go into death about which we know practically nothing. We have a few cheerful stories to ease us on the way, but who would want to make bet on all of that? So, so what you have is suspended between eternities a moment, 45, 55, 75 years, in which you can sit on your can or you can uh, subscribe to one of these prepackaged religions that gives you all the answers and probably sets you up for a lot of sexual repression. Or you can say, my God, I'm alive. 
apparently I've awakened in the control room of reality. And if I could just figure out what these buttons and levers are, I could, you know, do something profound, interesting, worthy. Yes. Well, see, there's never been a fair discussion about the whole spectrum of mystical phenomenon. Uh, a person who goes to an ashram and uh, controls diet and breath, and it, certainly they must attain some amount of spiritual satisfaction. And there must be many paths away from ordinary consciousness that lead to states of satisfaction of various sorts, either void states or states of great emotional empathy or states of great detachment. I mean, we can imagine each in our own way what these things would be. The thing to get clear about the psychedelic experience is that First of all, it isn't at all clear that it is on that gradient of spiritual development. We don't say here exactly what it is. Not that, you know, you're closer to God if you have it, or you're closer to the source if you have All we're saying is there seems to be waking, sleeping, and one other thing which very few people know much about, which is this situation when these self-transforming elf machines squealing mantras come and talk to you. Um, it isn't a void state. It may not be a mystical state. Now, what confuses the discussion is that at low doses, psychedelics are all kinds of things because they accept projection very readily and they, and they grow beneath the strobe light of expectation, if you will. But the trick is to get to the place where uh, your participation in willing the trip to happen is no longer an issue. You see what I mean? Once it no longer requires your cooperation, then you're getting close to the good stuff. And we all, myself included, are tremendously chicken shit about this because uh, you can take huge amounts of these organic psychedelics and be nowhere near death. I mean, you can take doses that no one of us would ever consider and an ordinary physician would say, well, he'll sleep it off, give him some oxygen, or, yeah, they'll be all right, you know? So, so we really just skin the lower edge of this thing. And this is a worldwide phenomenon. I mean, I have found this in shamanism in the Amazon, uh, other places as well. The, the people are very cautious with the mystery especially once they know how deep it can get. Because until you have had this experience where it's no longer you thinking strange thoughts or having unusual insights, it's that you know reality has dissolved, the carpet is speaking to you, you can't find your knees, and everything has come apart. This is very, uh, this is very impressive. And... and <laughs> Inside this place, it isn't as you might imagine if you had a reductionist view of brain function. It is, and a lot of early psychedelic literature makes this mistake 
they give you the idea that you're going to see beautiful patterns, <laughs> drifting lights, clouds of transparent color. This is in the, this is in the first uh, five minutes as whatever it is begins to lock hold. That's called hypnagogia. That's not the trip. That's just your brain telling you that something is about to happen. When the thing really begins to happen, it completely uh, transcends any kind of straight description of what is possible. And it's not a white light. It's not an undifferentiated void. It's much more like a place. It's much more like a place. There are entities in there. They are not made of flesh and blood. They're made of light and language, but they are alive. They come toward you. They're aware of you. You, you communicate with them. They offer uh, trade goods in the form of ideas. This seems to be the uh, currency of the other realm, is ideas. They're saying, what can you show me? Here's what we've got up today. And trade ideas. Now, if you were to ask a shaman, what are these things? What are these creatures in this other place? He would unhesitatingly reply, oh, well, those are the ancestors. Those are the ancestors. Those are the souls of the dead. Well, if we were to entertain this notion seriously for even a moment, our entire uh, reality structure would unbuckle I mean, we are much more willing to believe that it's friendly extraterrestrials from Arturus coming to check on what's going on than that it's my dead uncle. I mean, that is just too weird to wrap your mind around. And yet, uh, if we want to apply a, a principle of parsimoniousness, meaning you don't make it any more complicated than you have to, then we are living intelligent beings and probably the closest you can get to us is our souls. So before you go off looking for extraterrestrials or fairies, you might consider the possibility that the human being is organized in some way that actually persists after death. Uh, one thing that we'll talk about here is uh, the future. What is to become of us? How can we make sense of our situation and continue to live and honor not only the planet, but the unborn generations to come. The current situation is we borrow against the unborn. I mean, we are using up our share, our grandchildren's share, their grandchildren's share. We're using it up. No society in history has ever been so rapacious that it left its children no world uh, to inhabit. And I think, you know, uh, there is no rational way to save the world. Our only hope is a miracle. And the only place a miracle is going to come, so far as I can tell, is from psychedelics. That's the only miracle in town. There aren't any others. These geishis, rishis, roshis, babajis, all these swamis, these people need guidance themselves. They're not leading us anywhere. But each of us, based on our own authenticity, can confirm the fact that, hey, 
there's a universe next door. It may be as big as this universe or it may be as small as Rhode Island. We don't know yet because, you know, we've never really been able to explore it. But this is what all the big excitement is about. Now, our culture, prodigal, dominator, male-conscious, war-making, so forth and so on, has fallen away from this awareness. And I... Tomorrow we'll explain in excruciating detail how this happened. But basically what happened, I'll tell you the, I'll cut to the chase here tonight. What happened was they ran out of dope. And as soon as, as soon as they ran out of dope, now what does this mean, they ran out of dope? It means that on the African veldt, it progressively became more and more dry. And as it became more and more dry, the mushrooms were less and less available to be the driving force in this ecstatic, orgiastic, ego-dissolving religion, which was the religious form of human social life at that time. Uh, As the climate became more dry, the mushrooms became more scarce. The ceremonies occurred less often. In some cases, they occurred only a couple of times a year. And in the meantime, everybody turned into um, less fully functioning members of society because ego, sense of property, my food, my women, my territory, this kind of thing began to get going. Uh, Eventually, there were so few mushrooms that they had to be preserved in honey Uh, so that supplies could be built up sufficient for them to be taken. Well, this is all fine, except that honey is itself capable of fermenting into alcohol, and you get mead from fermented honey. So over a very long period of time, what began as a mushroom cult that turned into a mushroom cult preserving its mushrooms in honey turned into just a frat rat beer bust uh, a thousand, five thousand years later. And notice that there's no blame. It's nobody's fault. I mean, you can't blame the planet for getting drier. And that was the real force which propelled us into the nomadic pastoral mode in the first place into the creation of this mushroom religion on the plains of Africa. And then when that unstable situation uh, changed into something else, uh, our human institutions were transformed yet again into the incipient dominator culture of which we are the inheritors. And the only way now to do anything about this is with a kind of... um, pharmacological intervention because we don't have 500 years to straighten this mess out and educate. They're always saying educate, educate. We don't have time to educate everybody. We probably have 50 years before we will so completely lose control of the toxic processes that we've set in motion on this planet that there will be no holding back the cascade of consequences. So we have 50 years So in that period of time, it seems to me, the fastest way to re-enchant the world, 
to create an archaic revival is to revive the tradition of ecstatic trans-shamanism, which means revive the tradition of psychedelic plant uh, use. And um, I think that's all I'm going to say this evening. In the course of the weekend, we'll talk about what is it like to do this, what were the stages along the way, how can culture get this screwed up, and then can it be saved? And then finally, the more personal dimension, which is, you know, what is this going to mean? What is it? What does it mean? I mean, I think this is really the thing which drags us all together here. It's why I keep doing these things. Is you know, this is not a course in acupuncture or overtonal chanting, or not that I put any of those things down. I don't. They certainly have their place. But this is a, a, a class gathered together to discuss the um, impossible and the unspeakable as a real thing. It's not some philosophical hypostatization. It's something that most of the people in this room have had their hands on. Well, how can we then create a collective language so that we can understand this reality and then anchor it to the larger reality so that it can become a legitimate domain of cultural concern. This is what I want to talk about this weekend and to try and create uh, within the group a sense that we are part of uh, a change. Not that we're bringing back the 1960s, that's not it. It's that we're bringing back uh, the 15th millennium before Christ. That's what we're shooting for. <laughs> and everything leading up to this has been prelude. We are like the prodigal son. I'm sure you all know the story of the prodigal son. I don't, but the basic notion is he left the family and the father grieved for him and kept him in his mind and finally the prodigal son returned and this reunified the family. The fall into history is a prodigal experience. We have now wandered for 10,000 years in the desert of male dominance, historicity, linear thinking, phonetic alphabets, bad advertising, you name it. And the only way that edifice of phenomena can be redeemed is if we bring the snake around and let it take its tail in its mouth. In other words, history was, there was a reason for it. It was not simply a random walk into error. The reason for history was to empower us to then live shamanic ethics, no more as uh, pitiful hunter-gatherer bands oppressed by uh, disease and uh, uh, resource constraints within the environment. That isn't what we are now. Now we are, in a sense, the pinnacle of creation. We are the dominant species on this planet, uh, dominant in the sense that what we do matters. It's not what flatworms do that matters now. It's what we do. We send out ripples of perturbation that affect every organism on the planet. So, in a sense, 
the the healing of the planet, the saving of the planet, and the healing and saving of ourselves is obviously the same task. The third declension of that is it's a personal task. It's very easy to get up on a soapbox and exhort people and say, well, you know, you should be doing this and those people over there have it all wrong. They should be doing that. But I really think the major political obligation upon all of us is to get more stoned, take larger hits. Because it's, it's, then you find out, you know, who was it? I think it was Arthur Eddington who said, uh, we must find out what is true in order to do what is right. How can you do what is right if you don't know what is true? Well, the task of finding out what is true means the exploration of the experience of being human. Our sexuality, obviously. Our ability to care for our parents and to care for our children, obviously. But then this other thing as well, this massive internal dimension in the mind that is as much a part of our human nature as any of the rest of us, and in fact, probably a dominant part. You know, years ago, these things were called consciousness-expanding drugs. It was a good old phenomenological description. Consciousness-expanding drugs. Well... If there is one iota of truth in the notion that these drugs expand consciousness, then we have to line up and take them because consciousness is what we are starving for. It is the absence of consciousness that will shove this planet irrevocably into the abyss. If yoga works, use it. If psilocybin works, use it. Whatever works must be used because we are beyond a debate on methods now, this is a sinking submarine. Anybody who has any idea about what should be done should be very, very carefully listened to. And uh, as I say, I scrounged the world, sat at the feet of various people in various countries and traditions, and my personal take on it is that uh, there are no human answers. There are only answers in the plants. And it is for us then to find those answers. And this is what we'll attempt to discuss and delineate this weekend. One question. Well, there have been many, there have been five or six ice ages in the last 125,000 years. The last interglacial lasted about 11,000 years from about uh, 40,000 BC to about 32,000 BC, and then the ice came again. As recently as 13,000 years ago, the ice was a mile deep at Sidon in Lebanon. And if any of you have been to northern Israel, try to imagine a mile deep of ice right there. Each time the ice came south, it bottled up hominid species in Africa. They couldn't get out as they previously could. And then there was intensified natural selection because of increased pressure on natural resources. So in a way, the diastolic ebb and flow of the glaciers was a major force uh, 
creating the, the rapid evolution of the human form, the group of people that left Africa about 18,000 years ago when the last glaciers melted um, were the first people to leave Africa as pastoralists. In other words, the, the people who left Africa at the close of the last glaciation herded cattle and had a very complex social form based on, uh, on cattle and uh, nomadism and so forth and so on. The previous people to leave Africa at the interglacial before that were simple hunters and gatherers. And what I will argue this weekend is it's this pastoral form, the, the human beings and their flocks, that was the Edenic moment. That's when we had fully left the animal nature behind and we had not yet encountered the dominator style at all. And there was a period of 10, 15,000 years that was absolute bliss. I mean, what we were made for. And uh, this is the myth of Eden. And the destruction of Eden, maybe we'll talk about that myth, is definitely the destruction of an, equi- of a, of an equilibrium by episodes of aridity and a drying. And a whole world in balance, a minded world. I mean, a world with song, with dance, with painting, with music, uh, with story, with astronomy, with medicine. A whole world was lost there. And that loss is the itch that we can't scratch. This is why human beings are addictable to almost everything. We're like the children of a dysfunctional relationship. We were torn from something very important to us and it has left us with an existential longing that money, power, women, it doesn't do it. And I think it's because we had this Edenic symbiotic relationship that history is a fall. History is a declension from that state of perfect equilibrium. And history, if allowed to go on unchecked, is ultimately fatal to everything. So we have to steer back toward this partnership mode. Okay, well, that's it for this evening. Go to the baths, get some sleep, do whatever you have to do. See you at 10 a.m. Thank you. Okay. Well, I talked a little bit last night. I didn't really introduce myself, which I, I suppose I should. I'm pretty comfortable here, so I tend to assume that in some sense everybody knows everybody. But... Uh, my uh, how I got to be doing what I'm doing was basically simply because I was so impressed with uh, the the psychedelic experience as I went along through life. I'm not sure whether I was set up for it or what, because before I ever heard of the psychedelic experience, I had a kind of an insatiable curiosity. And I think this is part of the, the psychedelic personality. I was, a, as a kid, I was a rock and fossil collector. 
and I was a pretty weird kid. I didn't, uh, I wasn't big on big league, uh, little league, and that sort of thing. I was usually off in the dry deserts around where I lived, digging for fossils and that sort of thing. And then I got into uh, butterflies. This was about age 11. And this was in the pre-Buddhist phase of society. So the slaughter of insects was not viewed with the same horror that it uh, is reserved for it today. And then I uh, got into rockets as I hit adolescence. And Freudian interpretations aside... Uh, you know, there is something immensely satisfying about burning up all this metallic fuel in a few seconds and sending something hundreds and hundreds of feet into the air. <laughs> and then I sort of, uh, I read Aldous Huxley and Ashley Montague and all those people, and I sort of turned on science and my previous naive love of nature, rocks, stars, and butterflies. And uh, I discovered what was called then the humanities. And I was completely taken by this whole notion. I had never given human nature a thought. This is me, age 13. And so then I got into history and art history and literature and it was fairly obnoxious actually because just you know always write no matter what it is you don't know was sort of my attitude and uh, eventually this kind of insatiable curiosity I think will lead most people to uh, this sort of triggered discovery which is that most things in the world are hype, most things in the world are oversold and under-deliver. But um, in my experience, uh, sex, music, and psychedelics deliver. They are actually uh, they are actually better than advertised. <coughs> And uh, this, this means this is the place to put the pressure and to uh, check it out, see what's going on. And uh, I was very fortunate just in my history. I, I went to the University of California at Berkeley in the fall of 1965, which meant that somehow this kid from this coal mining town in Colorado had been able to figure it out to the point where I was at ground zero of the cultural explosion of the 1960s. I remember my parents reading these horror stories about the University of California. They said, well, there are 40,000 students there. You'll be lost. You'll be a nameless atom in a sea of humanity. I said, that's right. <laughs> that's the plan. <laughs> because I understood that something about my development required anonymity. <laughs> well, LSD was breaking out, and um, even marijuana was a tremendous deal back then. I mean, I can remember as a senior in high school starting to smoke pot and it was very interesting but the thing that came along with it that I had not expected 
was what I named back then the head ethic and that there were these people called heads who were very weird and that was and they and they seemed to have an entirely different perspective on reality than everybody else and at that time it was more conspiratorial than being a communist or a homosexual or anything you can possibly imagine i mean it, you kept it under wraps and in fact then when i went to berkeley it was sort of disappointing to realize that this meme was apparently going to sweep the world and uh, our little thing was going to expand to uh, the dimensions of a social phenomenon. And, you know, up to that point, I think probably my story parallels a lot of people's story of that time and and generation. But uh, in January of 1966, someone who worked on an army project at Stanford in a menial capacity, uh, brought me some DMT that they had gotten out of the lab. And uh, I was, uh, I'd taken LSD three or four times and immediately proclaimed myself an expert on the subject and it seemed to be there was nothing else that was talked about in the circles that I was in. So I asked this guy, well, what is this? And he said, well, you should just try it. And I said, well, how long does it last? And he said, well, five minutes. He said, okay, I'll try it. That was all I felt I had to know about it. Well, I don't know how many of you have have smoked DMT, but it is like being struck by metaphysical lightning. I mean, it's the most appalling thing that can happen to you, this side of the grave. If it's right, if it's right, because, um, you know, what happens is uh, very rapidly, over a space of maybe 30 seconds, the universe is entirely replaced by something else. And the something, the thing that's so astonishing about what replaces reality is it's utterly unexpected. It's the most astonishing thing you can imagine. In fact, what makes it so bizarre is it's more astonishing than you can imagine. It seems to slam through your capacity for amazement. Somebody once asked me, you know, is DMT dangerous? And the answer is only if there is a possibility of death by astonishment. (laughs) And, you know... Hey, don't sell it short. Uh, so, on the brink of that experience, 18 years old, I was uh, a reductionist, a Marxist, a behaviorist, an atheist, you know, one of those people. And uh, 30 seconds after smoking this stuff, uh, these I encountered for the first time in my life the things I mentioned last night, the self-transforming elf machines, the sense of bursting into an underground space, uh, a huge domed space, but somehow with the sense of great weight above it. And there in that space are these entities which are not made of matter, They appear to be made on one level of light, 
on another level, a further level of analysis that took a number of exposures to this, they appear to be composed somehow of syntax. It's a life form made out of language. It's existing in another dimension. I mean, our sentences have subjects and objects. Um, this, this was a subject, and it was producing objects, and there were many such subjects. These objects are like uh, superbly machined Fabergé eggs or the constructions of, the mind, of a mind that is both artist, jeweler, and engineer, and they show you these things very quickly, one after another. The amazement comes from the fact that in the contemplation of what you're being shown, you know in the back of your mind, the middle of your mind, the front of your mind, that what you're seeing is impossible. That there is something about it that if you could carry it into this world, this world would unravel that this level of beauty, perfection, enfolded intentionality is impossible in this world. And these syntactical beings are proffering for your inspection these objects. The objects themselves are somehow alive. They, in turn, through this condensed language of song, produce other objects. And the whole spectacle is one of, uh, you know, zaniness mixed with beauty, mixed with confusion. Most of the confusion coming from the precipient, because your mind is literally blown and struggling with major issues, such as, am I dead? Is this what's happened? What has happened? It must, something really catastrophic has happened. This is not how drugs Perform. I mean, drugs push you one way and another way and make you loquacious and make you horny and make you this and make you that. This is not like a drug. It's as though a door has opened and you have been shoved through into a previously unsuspected domain. And when you search your physiognomy for signs of trouble, you don't find them. You find, my breathing is normal. My heartbeat is normal. My pulse is normal. But what the hell is going on? <laughs> well, what is going on is that the visual uh, input into the brain, whether your eyes are open or closed, has been taken over by a vision of another place. And we can imagine other places, alien worlds, arctic worlds, jungle worlds, the interior of buildings, primitive, advanced, futuristic, but it all goes on within a context of three-dimensional space and time and linear language. This is stranger than that. This is literally another dimension where there, you know, there are subjects and there are objects and there is a field and there is a ground. But more than that, you can't really say. And after many, many exposures to this, and by many, many, I mean like a dozen or so, because, you know, talk about a drug that is not abusable. I mean, anyone with any sense will have very little to do with this, even if they regard it as a lifetime obsession. 
mean, this is not something you do on a daily basis, is what I'm saying. Um, so after putting in a lot of thought about it, I realized that there was a way to map the situation in the DMT space. And what it is, is it's this. When you burst into that space, it's, is, it seems like the most alien thing you have ever encountered. It is, in fact, the most alien thing you have ever encountered. It completely exceeds expectation. And yet, on another level, it is an effort on the part of something to come toward you from a great, great distance. And the map that seems most applicable to what it is, is it's a playpen. It's a receiving area. It's somebody very strange. It's their idea of what would make a human being feel comfortable and reassured. <laughs> I saw Ralph Metzner on Thursday night, and they, he and Kathy have a wonderful new child, Sophia. And so there was Sophia lying in her bassinet and suspended above her head were these shiny plastic objects in bright primary colors which a series of geared mechanisms keep in motion. And so she's just lying there looking at this thing. That's what this DMT receiving area is for us. It is... Uh, it's a place designed to accelerate our learning, reassure us, make us feel comfortable, and amuse us. And these things, which would shatter the sciences of Earth if they could be brought through from this other dimension, are the equivalent of rattles, spin-arounds, and colored blocks. I mean, they are the simplest objects imaginable in that other world. Well... I don't. It, it would not be, I suppose, such big news to wrap a wrap like this if, you know, I were swathed in orange robes and had just flew in from Bangalore and uh, had my world-girdling organization behind me, because you would just assume that I was an advanced being and that this was reportage from a world that you would never have anything to do with. But the fact is, everyone in this room, or most people in this room, are capable of this experience. I went into... Nobody was more hard-boiled than I. I mean, I was a, an existentialist in the Sartian mold, and it didn't keep the elves from approaching me. Um, so I have been at concern to inform UFO people, Jungian psychologists, spiritual seekers that, you know, this tremendously powerful tool lies present at hand. Uh, curiosity pushed far enough will hit the jackpot. The, the world is not as we suppose. The great thing you see about DMT is that it settles certain questions assumed to be open. You know, like one question we all assume to be open is, well, is this the only universe or not? Answer, no. That settles that. Uh, are there intelligent entities of a non-human sort? Answer, 
Yes, there are. I don't know what they have to do with busted up barley fields in England or, you know, Whitley Strieber's problems, but inside this drug, inside this plant compound, there are entities. And they are not oblivious to us. They're not flatworms or pelicans. They are intelligent. They are of the same class of being as we are, an intelligent being. Okay, well then there are questions, some of which I mentioned last night. Who are these people? Are they uh, the dead? That would be big news. A drug, a drug that allows you to contact uh, Aunt Minnie in the afterlife. I don't know how we would, you know, this is National Enquirer stuff. Uh, what is the most parsimonious explanation that we can give? In other words, what is the simplest and least freaky explanation that we can give? Why should people see these little entities? Well. Um, one idea that I've kicked around, because see, at heart, I still am a reductionist, is that personality is actually uh, fractal in some sense. It's self-similar. What does fractal mean? It means that um, any object which is made out of smaller versions of itself is fractal. So if you had a, a house made out of little houses... Uh, a good example is a fern. A fern is made out of little ferns, made out of still littler ferns, you know, if you examine in and look at it. Many objects are like this. Is it possible that the personality is fractal? Jung made a lot of metaphorical statements about the behavior of the psyche based on the behavior of mercury, the metal, the liquid metal mercury, which was an object of fascination to the alchemists. Uh, and he said, what, he said mercury is a perfect uh, symbol or it accepts the projections of the qualities of the psyche because uh, the psyche will always take the shape of its container as a liquid does. Psyche is reflective. And in the same way that Mercury is a mirrored surface, you never see Mercury. You see the reflections of the world around Mercury on its surface. And in the same way that if you have Mercury, I'm sure you all uh, in the era of pre-toxic consciousness played with Mercury, uh, you can take a ball of Mercury and put your thumb down on it quickly and it will break into little balls that will shoot in all directions. And each little ball will have a sub-reflection of the larger world in it. Well, is it possible that we could take the Jungian metaphor of the self as alchemical mercury and then say, well, what happens on DMT is the alchemical vessel is essentially hurled down in front of the uh, experience and the mercury of self shoots everywhere and there are thousands of little versions of the self then ricocheting off the walls, some this big, some this big, some this big, some tiny. I confess that as much fun as it is to have this image, I'm not sure it provides an explanation. You have to have this experience to realize how resistant to explanation it's going to be.
Well, then there are less parsimonious explanations uh, that these that these entities, but still not going outside the human van. See, the first possibility was it's dead people. Those are still human beings. They just happen to be dead human beings. Then the second explanation was it's autonomous fragments of psychic mercury behaving as small portions of the self. Okay, we still haven't gone outside the human domain for an explanation. Okay, a third explanation is uh, that these, this is some future state of humanity, that these things are actually, the reason they're like us but not like us is because we're seeing a human evolutionary form a million years in the future or more where finally, you know, technology has been interiorized. The thing is, it's no longer even made of matter, still less of the body of an intelligent monkey. But nevertheless, it is somehow in our line and we've just broken into the equivalent of a coaxial cable carrying time travel messages or something like that. Because there are reports on DMT of people bursting into spaces where the entities were extremely uh, surprised and basically said, you know, what the hell are you doing here? Uh, So is it that there is some kind of hyperdimensional matrix of communication that we dial in on like primitives with a crystal radio who suddenly discover, you know, that there's 250 UHF, VHF channels running around through every molecule? Uh, I don't know. The other possibility then is um, a non-human explanation. Now, the non-human explanation sets us up for nut country because, uh, you know, so, there are so many extraterrestrials haunting the supermarkets and uh, trailer courts of Earth that... Uh, nevertheless, science has never really fairly dealt with the, with the question of... of human origins and the presence of human beings in uh, the ecology of this planet. There is no doubt that if you're looking for the fingerprint of alien intervention in the biosystem of this planet, the presence of human beings is the major contender. I mean, we are not simply another kind of monkey. And the most reductionist people when they attempt to explain how you move from a hominoid ape to a human being, use phrases like confluence of mysterious forces as yet unelucidated factors. Um, so f- means they don't know. Missing links. <laughs> Missing links. They haven't the faintest idea. Here's a, here's a piece of data to chew over. Um, the tripling of the human brain size in a period of two million years was the most rapid acceleration and transformation of an organ system of an animal in the history of the earth. And this comes from this, that the, the 
tripling of the human brain size over two million years it was the most rapid transformation of an animal organ in the whole history of evolution. And this comes from Edmund o. Wilson, Edward O. Wilson, who, as you know, is the sociobiologist and the keeper of the flame of scientific rhetoric and purity. So, and he's pointing his finger at the problem for anybody trying to talk about the emergence of human beings out of the uh, out of the hominid apes. How? What drove this to happen so quickly? And obviously, along certain very channelized lines. I mean, human being, uh, not human beings, but advanced hominids had been chipping stone and wandering around in Africa for a very, very long time. And culture was dull. It was dull. And then suddenly, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, something took hold. Was it language? Was it fire? What was it? Well, we don't know. And nobody on the straight side of things has any reasonable explanation. I think that the, the Promethean fire that was brought to human beings that gave us a leg up on the rest of creation was a relationship with these psychoactive plants. And this doesn't get rid of the mystery. This intensifies the mystery. You see, we now can analyze what happened on many, many levels. Neurophysiological, at the level of the individual, the individual brain in contact with exogenous substances brought in from the biome in the form of foods. We can deal with the population genetics and mechanics of this kind of a confluence of factors. And then finally, at a higher level, you have to ask, uh, why, why? Why? Why does it take the form of a personified other? Well, the scenario that I've created to explain all this is basically an evolutionary scenario. I mentioned some of it last night. Uh, the, the planet undergoes successive cycles of wetness and drying. Uh, 30 million years ago, 30 million years ago, longer than we've been talking about, Africa was heavily forested from, from top to bottom. It was, the world was, was warmer and it was a climaxed forest ecology. Then, and these ape forms uh, and primate forms proliferated and had an arboreal style of life that, where they were fruit-eating and they were social or gregarious and they communicated through a very minimal language of, of signals. And they had binocular vision because they were insectivores. So they, uh, they, they had uh, uh, the capacity to coordinate space very well because of living in the canopy environment. Under pressure of drying, the rainforest environment began to shrink. And when it did, these um, organisms, these animals, made their way into the grassland. And there they had to compete with other large mammals, ungulate mammals that were evolving there. Uh, 
binocular vision was uh, accelerated or really set in place. It wasn't so much in these early primates. There was the, the precondition for it. But for some reason, the eyes moved around the head. And the theory now is that bipedalism was basically an adaptation that allowed carrying. It was for carrying. It was because the style of these apes was to have a campsite they weren't. They carried nutrition back to a central site, and this gave them a leg up on competing hominids that were not able to take this erect position and free the hands. Well, um, this is the point. On the grasslands, in the presence of these ungulate animals, now bipedal, now binocular, this is the place where these mysterious unelucidated factors raise their head because it's right there that begins the cascade in the explosion of brain size. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And I'm going to cut it off right there for today because, well, for the next 20 minutes or so, Terence goes into his uh, stoned ape theory, which we've heard quite a few times here in the salon already. And when I play the next installment of this workshop, I'll be picking up right after that uh, often heard rap. Now, if you're new here to the salon, don't worry. There are over a hundred other talks by Terrence McKenna that I podcast. And uh, should you go back and listen to some of them, I'm confident that you're going to hear his proposed stoned ape theory uh, more than one time. But going back to an earlier part of today's talk, I hope that you smiled uh, as much as I did when Terrence answered the question about how we humans got ourselves into the mess that we're in today. Do you remember what he said about those uh, ancient humans who were living in a paradise-like world? Well, he said that what he thought caused the loss of this life was, and I quote, they ran out of dope. (laughs) Also, uh, I hope that you pick up on what he was saying about the challenge of the psychedelic community being to create a collective language to better describe our experiences during a psychedelic trip. The first thing that came to my mind when I heard uh, that was last week's podcast where Nishé Devineau uh, gave a completely new description of a DMT experience, one that uh, didn't include those notorious machine elves that, <laughs> that Terrence has saddled our minds with for far too long. And then uh, when he said, And it's not a white light. It's not an undifferentiated void. It's much more like a place. I thought about something that I wrote in The Spirit of the Internet back in 1999 when, uh, as far as I know, I was the first to describe what I call entheospace. At the time that I published that book, I googled the word and there were no hits for it. Yet today there are close to 1,000 websites on which my definition may be found. And it's uh, very reminiscent of what Terrence said. Uh, My definition of entheospace is, and I'm quoting from my book here, The realm of divine mind in theospace is actually the sense of place that one has at times when an exploration of one's inner landscape leads to the realization that this is much more than just a fascinating landscape. It is an entire universe. At moments when this realization is so deeply interiorized as to be an essential part of one's being, one is said to be in in theospace. 
When the focus of one's consciousness is on in theospace, one experiences a deeply seated sense of being infused with, and a part of, divine mind. End quote. So, uh, I'm pleased to have done my little insignificant part in helping to create a new collective language for us psychonauts. Uh, and one last thing that I want to point out about the talk that we just listened to is where Terence was speaking about our only hope for the future when he said, Okay, we don't have time to educate everybody. We probably have 50 years before we will so completely lose control of the toxic processes that we've set in motion on this planet that there will be no holding back the cascade of consequences. So we have 50 years. So in that period of time, it seems to me, the fastest way to re-enchant the world, to create an archaic revival, is to revive the tradition of ecstatic trans-shamanism which means revive the tradition of psychedelic plant uh, use. As you may recall, he prefaced that statement by saying that, in his opinion, we only had about 50 more years in which to turn things around before environmental and political degradation passed their points of no return before our species entered into a period of permanent decline. Need I remind you that he said that in 1989, which means that by his timetable, we are now down to our last 23 years or so. And if you, uh, like me, agree with Terence that psychedelic medicines are the only hope we humans have to heal ourselves and our world, well, then my question to you is, what are you waiting for? If you haven't done so already, then, uh, well, maybe today is the day for you to stand up and be counted. We're all in this together, you know. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.